Good morning, and it's great to be back here. I don't remember when the last time I was here, but it's great to be back at Journey, and I want to thank you, uh, as always, for being such a great partner of Waypoint Church Partners. Uh, since uh, this church began in the early 70s, we've been great partners together, and uh, Waypoint provides a host of strategic services to churches around the Mid-Atlantic region, but we also start new churches uh, as well, and I want to thank you for being a partner that helps us do that. Uh, we've got a map of all the churches that you've helped us start over the years. We're up to 48 uh, now, and so I want to thank you for that, and uh, that, and it's a great ministry that you all partner together with us to see new churches get started. Our uh, two most recent churches uh, that got started, uh, one uh, almost a year ago, last September, was Canvas Christian Church that started in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and they started, they met in the movie theater. We got a picture uh, there of their uh, opening day there at a movie theater. The two churches that I helped get started in here in Virginia were in movie theater, so I love that kind of venue. My kids don't know how to do church without sticking on the floor. Uh, and uh, so uh, so it feels really comfortable. Goldsboro is a military town, Air Force Base. And uh, then uh, and uh, they uh, the, the most recent one started in March, uh, which uh, is um, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, another military town, Navy town. And this is called the Journey Christian Church. Go figure. Uh, and so they stole it from you guys, apparently, because you're the only other Journey Church in America. Uh, and so... Uh, so uh, we're really glad that you've helped us partner with those churches. And we're, we're great to start new churches. Uh, but what we really love is that our new churches do a great job of reaching new people for Christ. It's not just shuffling the, the saints or shifting uh, the sheep, if you know what I mean. And so these two churches are a great example of that. The first church, the one in Goldsboro in 10 months, has celebrated 21 baptisms already. And uh, that's something to be excited about. It is. That's right. If you're going to applaud for anything today, that's worth applauding for. And the newest church, uh, their Journey Christian in Virginia Beach, is just four months old. They've had 13 baptisms already as well. And so... Um that's something to be really proud of, that you're helping churches get started, but churches that are really focused on reaching new people for Christ. So I want to thank you for, uh, for that. And, um, and so I want to talk today about uh, church planting, but kind of along this series uh, that, that you're in about stories, about parables. But, uh, but I want to talk, some people wonder, why, why, why would you start new churches? Don't we have enough churches already? And so let me give you one statistic uh, that would explain that, and then we'll move into scripture. And here's the, t the statistic uh, that you have to kind of follow along with. 30 years from now, half of all people attending a church in America are going to be a, attending a church that's less than 30 years old. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but if this generation follows suit like the last three generations, that's kind of the cutoff. It's about 30 years old as the median age of attendance for a church. Here's another way to put that. Uh, today in America, half of the people attending a church this morning in, in America are in a church that was started after 1992. Does that make any sense? 30 years is usually it's within a year or two is where the cutoff line is. And so here's the point of this one little statistic before we get into scripture is that uh, this 30 years from now, half of all people attending a church in America are going to be in a church that has not yet started. Think about that. If this generation follows suit 30 years from now, half the people attending a church are going to be in a church we've got to start. And so it's a great compelling reason why we're thankful for partners like you that help us plant one church after another, after another, after another that are reaching new people for Christ. Well, let's move into, um, into scripture. And I, I want to talk about, uh, the, the, take a stab at, at the, the why. Why start, really not start about new churches, about why we do this whole thing called church in the first place. Have you ever thought about that? Why do we do church? At some, time, at some point, you got to ask yourself the question, why do we do this? every Sunday. 
Have you ever thought about that? I got here kind of early this morning and there were cars out in the parking lot and there were people here in, this, in the, the building getting all ready. And why, why do people get here like way early in the morning every week? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, why do some of you serve, hopefully many of you serve at this church and that you commit to serving in some area like with the kids or the first impressions team or in the worship uh, area or in the tech crew? Why do, why do people commit to doing that every week? Why do people give sacrificially uh, to support what God is doing through this church. Why do you do that? Uh, why uh, would you invite your friends to come to this church? Or more importantly, why was it important, so important for someone to invite you to come to church in the first place? Why, why do we do this thing called church in the first place? And so to answer that question, I wanna look at an account in the biography of the life of Jesus written by this doctor named Luke. And, um, and I think it gives us some divine insight into this question about why in the first place. And since I travel to a different church practically every Sunday, uh, I, I have the luxury of only needing one good sermon. Uh, problem is I preached that sermon here before and so I'm, I, I'm stuck. And so, and because I'm convinced that every one of you remembers every word of that sermon. Um, so, uh, so I had to come up with a sequel to my sermon about church planting. And uh, recently one of our church planters on his opening day uh, preached a message about the why, about why you would start a new church. And I thought that's exactly the topic that I need for the sequel. So with his permission, I've adapted kind of a chunk of his message into what I wanna share with you today from Luke chapter 15. And so if you've got your Bibles open uh, or you can open your Bibles or your app, you want to look at uh, Luke chapter 15 and, um, and take a look at not one, but three parables, three short parables that Jesus teaches about the why. And uh, so if you'll follow along with me, uh, Luke chapter 15, verse one, we'll start right at the beginning of the, ch the chapter. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Isn't that a great word? They, they muttered. And this is what they said. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And for some reason, when I think, when I think of them saying this, I think they crinkled up their nose when they said the word sinners. They went, they went sinners like that, you know what I mean? Crinkle up your nose and say sinners, sinners, all right? So these religious people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, this man, Jesus, he's, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And so the Pharisees are judging Jesus because of the people he's choosing to hang out with. And I think that Jesus' response to them is really fascinating because he doesn't address their complaint about his, uh, his choice of people who's hanging out with uh, head on. Instead, he chooses to tell them these next two short parables. And so we we've continue on and the Bible records, then Jesus told them this parable, this story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 90 and nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Uh, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Then he continues. 
Jesus says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends on her cell phone, texts them and says, come on over, rejoice with me. I found my one lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so what's the point that Jesus is trying to make with these two stories that he said when these religious leaders were worried about who he's hanging out with? You see, sheep were valuable possessions at the time. In their economy, sheep were expensive. Your net worth was often calculated by the number of sheep that you owned. And uh, shepherds were often hired from within the village. So actually the sheep actually perpetuated the economy of a, of a local village. And a hundred sheep might be all the sheep that one little village had collectively. And each family might have only owned one sheep. And then the 10 coins in the second parable uh, represent a woman's wedding dowry. It's her inheritance, basically her retirement. And without a safe deposit box at the local bank that she could go down to, she would often wear them around her neck because they were so important to her and her future. And so Jesus' central point with both of these parables is this, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious people of the time, were judging people, were judging Jesus for spending time with a group of people that they didn't think were worthy enough or religious enough to hang out with a guy like Jesus. And they were saying, we're better than those who are not religious. And so uh, we don't think you should spend your time with them either. And so Jesus kind of flips their spiritual prejudice on its head upside down uh, because in these two parables, he's comparing the lost sheep and the lost coin to the people that he's choosing to hang out with. And what he's saying is this, in the same way that the one lost sheep is valuable enough for the shepherd to go after. And in the same way that the a one lost coin is valuable enough for the woman to flip her house upside down looking for, the tax collectors and sinners that I'm hanging out with, they're valuable enough for me to spend time with them. Let that sink in for a minute. And so the general application that Jesus is saying right here is people are valuable to God, even those who are lost, even the people who are far from him. And this is an important message for us to really grasp today, grasp today because I think we live in a world where God is, is thought of in often one of two camps. He's either thought of as antagonistic uh, towards humanity or aloof towards humanity. If there even is a God, God is clearly detached from the world and not really paying attention. And maybe that explains uh, why we see all the strife and tragedy and, and crazy stuff going on in the news every single day. Or if there is a God, he's clearly against humanity or at least big parts of it. And that's how we can explain all the strife and tragedy we see on the news every day. But here in this passage, we see Jesus himself communicating exactly how God really feels about people. God is not indifferent or antagonistic towards humanity. He actually sees humanity, humans as valuable. And not just the good enough people, not just the religious enough people, but everybody, even the people that don't even want to have anything to do with him. And so Jesus is saying in the same way that a shepherd would go after a lost sheep and in the same way that someone would flip their house upside down looking for a lost coin, that's the exactly the same way that God longs for and goes after humanity. 
He goes after those who are far from him, those who are lost. And I use that word lost very carefully because I, I think it bothers me the way it sometimes come across. Uh, some religious people, well-intentioned ones, will talk about people outside the faith kind of condescendingly, and they'll kind of crinkle up their nose when they say lost people. You know what I mean? And when you hear this story, and when you realize the way this term lost started being used in the first place is not like that at all. Predictably, the religious people in this story are the condescending ones, but not Jesus. Jesus, the one who coins the phrase lost people, the, the people he's spending time with, they're people of worth and dignity. Because for Jesus, get this, for Jesus, lost equals valuable, doesn't it? That's the point of these two parables. Lost equals valuable. And so the application that he's making is pretty obvious. When you lose something very valuable, you'll spare no effort and pay whatever cost you need in order to get it back. But there's another reason why we would spare no effort. It's not just because of how valuable people are to God, but because of what inevitably happens to humans when we get away from God. And so in this account in Luke 15, Jesus goes on to tell a third parable, a third divine story to explain this principle. So let's take a look at that in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. The Bible doesn't describe what wild living is. We have to imagine. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. So this is a Jewish boy feeding pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so this parable that Jesus tells gives us the other side of the story, not from the perspective of the shepherd who, who owns the sheep or the woman who owns the coin, but instead from the point of view from the lost item itself. Only in this passage, the item isn't an item, it's a person, right? It's a son. And what we see happens to the son is that the son without the father is not only lost to the father, but he's lost to himself, really, isn't he? He's lost to life. And what Jesus is teaching is that this is exactly what happens to humanity when they're far away from their heavenly father. It's not only that uh, humanity is far from God and God loves us and kind of wants to be with us and misses us and likes to hang out with us. The problem is that humanity without God descends into gra gradual decay at best and depravity at worst. And so maybe that's the third explanation for all the strife and tragedy that we see on the news every day is that God is not aloof or antagonistic, but maybe it's simply that it's the result of a world far from our heavenly father. And if that's true, then what you need to understand is that we don't only need to be found, but we need to be rescued. When you understand this principle, this whole passage takes on a new connotation. You understand the urgency with which the shepherd looks for the lost sheep and the urgency with which the woman looks for her lost coin and the urgency with which the father longs for his son. 
Because this idea of rescue has been ingrained in the human DNA, hasn't it? Uh, we tell stories about it. We write books about it. We make movies about it. As a matter of fact, there was a loose adaptation of the prodigal son story made in Hollywood about 20 years ago that's very familiar to many of us. It tells the story of a son that wanted to leave his father and so he, he took off and then the father embarks on this journey all the way across the world looking for his son and uh, risk his life and finally they reconnect at the end of the story. Do you know what movie I'm talking about? Finding Nemo, that's right. Uh, that's, that's the prodigal son story, isn't it? And there's a lot of other rescue stories if you think about it from the soldier lost behind enemy lines uh, to uh, the, the, the astronaut la, la, uh, left stranded on Mars. Which, uh, on a side note, ma makes me think, from Saving Private Ryan to Interstellar to The Martian, don't you think America has spent a ridiculous amount of, of time and money trying to rescue Matt Damon? <laughs> I looked it up online and someone had done the math about how much it would cost to rescue Matt Damon from all the movies he's had to be rescued in, and it came to some ridiculous number like $900 billion. And I think we could practically eliminate the national debt if we could just convince Matt Damon to stay home. Thank you. That took a while. But when you step back and take a look at all these rescue stories, more objectively, we could say that, you know, the, the plot of these stories is way too irresponsible. The cost is way too high. The risk is way too much. But if the authors of these rescue stories bought into that narrative, then the stories that they would write would last like 15 minutes and no one would go to see them in the movie theater, right? That's the whole point. Uh, they, wouldn't, they would make for pretty bad stories. The reason these movies are hits, the reason we watch them over and over again is because there's something deep inside the human heart that resonates with the idea of a rescuer and a rescue because we recognize the value of human life. It's ingrained in our DNA. And we understand the extent to which love will go. And when you love someone, you're gonna do whatever it takes to get them back, won't you? You're gonna do whatever it takes. And when you understand this principle, these parables in Luke chapter 15 take on a whole new meaning. It's not only that the, the shepherd searches and searches or the woman searches and searches, uh, it's that they searched until. Did you notice how those two past, these two parables conclude that we read? They include the word until. Let's take a look back in Luke uh, 15, verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? The operative word in both of these parables is the word until, isn't it? When you lose something that's valuable to you, you'll do whatever it takes. You'll do whatever you have to do until you find it. Years ago, I lost my Palm Pilot and couldn't find it for several days. Do any of you, uh, did any of you ever own a Palm Pilot back in the day? Some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. Back in the day, you had to, you had to carry two electronic devices with you. One was your cell phone uh, that was about this size, and then your PDA, your personal digital assistant. And, uh, and um, I believe Palm Pilots were the reason that uh, smartphones were invented in the first place, not really so much for their breakthrough technology, but because you look like a total nerd if you carried a, 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 PD, a 
personal digital assistant. At least that's what my wife, Lisa, said about me was I was a nerd with my Palm Pilot. And so you just look cooler if you had a smartphone. Well, I lost my Palm Pilot and I searched for it for days, but I couldn't find it. And we turned the house upside down, couldn't find it. Finally, I realized that it had slipped out of my pocket in our car and had fallen down in between the seat and the console. You know what I'm talking about? But in our particular car, it was a Ford minivan, uh, it had fallen far enough down that I couldn't get at it from above, but it hadn't gone far enough down from below that I could get at it either from below. And so you know what I did? I went into the garage, got out my socket set, and I completely removed the seat from the car and took it out of the car to retrieve my Palm Pilot. Now, you want to know why I did it? Did that? Because I'm a nerd. That's why. <laughs> that's at least what my wife said. No, I did that because it was that valuable to me. And when you lose something that's valuable to you, you're going to do whatever it takes to get to get uh, to get to that until you retrieve it. You know, when you read the biographies of Jesus through the lens of this word until, all the stories of Jesus take on a whole new meaning. Because in the stories of Jesus, his until meant something very, very costly to him. Jesus said this about himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. You see, for Jesus, his life was his until. And the fact that Jesus gave up his life to rescue us, to bring God and humanity back together, inviting all humanity to come back home, is what inspired the first followers uh, of Jesus to carry that message wherever they went. And historically, the way they did that was by starting new churches in every neighborhood, in every city that they could. And that's how Christianity has spread for the last 2,000 years, which leads us to today and to this church and why this church got started in the first place, uh, and why this church is helping us to start so many more. Because we believe, we deeply believe that God values humanity. We're all valuable to him, and he'll do whatever it takes to get us back. It's as simple as that. And as followers of Jesus, we urgently carry on that message of Jesus inviting people, humanity, back to God, back to the Heavenly Father, inviting people to, to come back home. Maybe you're old enough to remember back in the early 1990s that there was a long civil war in the African nation of Uganda. I don't know if you remember that. And it was a, a civil war based on ethnicity and hatred. And in the north, there was this uh, army, especially brutal, although it was a small uh, rebel militia of about 3,000 soldiers that had the unfortunate name, the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA had nothing to do with the Lord, but it was led by this brutal self-declared prophet named Joseph Kony. And the LRA was, was accused by the United Nations of widespread rights violations, human rights violations. It included murder, abduction, mutilation, child sex slavery, and forcing children to participate in military hostilities. And one of the ways that they would recruit new soldiers into the army, would, they, would be, they would abduct 10 to 12-year-old boys, kind of like, like this one here, and, um, from one village. And as a rite of initiation, they would force them to commit atrocities on people from another village, usually murder. And by doing this, they held their young prisoners captive, not so much physically, but psychologically and emotionally by telling these young boys, you can now never go back home. After what you've done, your parents won't want you. 
They'll hate you. They may even want to kill you. Now, during the height of this whole conflict in Uganda, there was a guy named John La Campbell who started a show on a local radio station that he titled very simply, Come Back Home. And the concept of his Come Back Home radio show was really simple. Uh, We got a picture of him, there he is. Uh, On his show, he would host the parents of these young abducted boys on the show, and the parents would just make a simple plea on the air for their kids to defect from the LRA and to come back home. And back then, the radio was all that, uh, the the only thing that the LRA uh, could get in many of the remote places that they occupied. And so they would listen to the show at night, and it started working. The young soldiers started defecting and returning home. And as these young soldiers started defecting, the LRA started warning the remaining child soldiers that it was a trap, that if they went back home, that they would be arrested by the Ugandan soldiers and, or they'd be killed by family and the friends and the community because of the horrific things that they had done and been forced to do. They could never go back home. So then Lacombelle started having the former captive soldiers their former mates who had already defected and been welcomed back home to make their own come back home messages. And they would invite their former soldier mates telling them that they too could come back home. Well, back here in the United States, a Christian organization heard about the atrocities and the child soldiers and the come back home radio program. And they organized a benefit concert tour where folks at concerts were invited to partner with an organization raising funds to build radio towers so that the radio station running Lock on Bell show could reach into even more remote parts of the territory where the LRA was. And you know what? I think the church is like that. The church is like that. Every new church, believe it or not, is like this radio tower, broadcasting to whomever would listen that they too can come back home. Because that's the desire of the Heavenly Father. And, and I believe that deep within us, there's a part of us that longs for that too, that every child of God would come back home. You know, there's this moment in the parable of the prodigal son that of all the scenes in scripture that I find profoundly moving. And it's the scene here at the end of Luke 15 of the father running to welcome his son back home. And this is the only time in all of scripture that we see God, the heavenly father, depicted as running. The only time we see God in a hurry to do anything is to welcome home his son. Let's read those verses to conclude Luke 15. When he, the son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was looking for him. He was watching for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And he said, the son of the son said to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. And that's what I hope this church is and every new church that you help us to start. Just another radio tower 
broadcasting deeper and deeper into enemy territory, the message from the Father, no matter what you've done, you're, you can come back home. And we who are here in this room today or watching online are merely former child soldiers who have been welcomed back by the Heavenly Father. And we're inviting uh, all those who have not yet been welcomed home to, to come back home because we have been too. Or maybe you're in this room today and you feel like you're still being held captive. You've been held captive by the lies of the evil one. Or maybe you feel like God, our Heavenly Father, could never love you or welcome you home because of all the things that you've done in your past. And you need to know that this is the message of the Father that we're broadcasting today from this church and from every church that you help us to start, that you too can come back home. We're gonna conclude uh, today by segueing into a time of communion. And um, I think it's pretty significant that Jesus would describe the heavenly father as running in this way. You see, in the first century, uh, a Middle Eastern man never ever ran. And if he were to run, he would have to hitch up his tunic uh, so that he wouldn't trip on it, exposing his bare legs. And in the first century culture, it was humiliating, uh, shameful for a man over the age of 25 to show his bare legs. It wouldn't work in America today, would it? So here's the question. If it was so shameful for a man to run in that culture, why did the father run to his son uh, when his son returned to him? What motivated him to shame himself? Well, before I answer that question, there's an important first century uh, Jewish custom that you've got to understand. Uh, there was a, a, a principle uh, in the first century that said if a Jewish son squandered all of his inheritance to Gentiles and then tried to return home, the village that that son was from would perform a ceremony called the Kazaza ceremony. And they would meet him at the city gates and they would bring a bunch of pots and they would bust the pots and they would yell and scream at him. And they would say to him, you are now cut off from your people. And the village would totally reject him. And so why did the father run? Perhaps in order to get to his son before he entered the village. The father runs and shames himself in an effort to get to his son before the community gets to him so that his son doesn't experience the shame and humiliation of their rejection. And after this emotional welcoming home of the prodigal by the father, it was clear that there would be no kazaza ceremony despite all the horrible things that he had done. The father took on the full shame that would have fallen on his son. And with arms wide open, clearly showed the entire village that his son was welcome to come back home. And the spiritual application for our lives today is crystal clear. Our heavenly father has taken on our shame through his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly endured the shame of the cross on our behalf. He took our shame so that we would not have to. And as a result, we don't ever have to fear of going home to the Father, no matter what we've done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these simple stories that Jesus told, these parables that give us a clue to how much you love us. But not just how much you love us, but how much you value us as your children. And that no matter what we've done, like this prodigal, you will run to us with arms wide open to welcome us home. 
And so now as we take communion, we are reminded that you took the shame on yourself, that Jesus took the shame of the cross to welcome us home. So we're thankful for his sacrifice for us so that we could come home to you. And we pray in his name, amen. If you've got the elements of communion there with you, your little cup, we're gonna take uh, communion together. And so if you'll uh, first take the bread from the top layer and remember the body of Jesus that was shed on the cross, the shame of him physically hanging on a cross, he bore our shame for us. Let's eat the bread. And then if you can open the juice. And the juice is a physical reminder for us every time that we take it together of Jesus until, that he searched for us until he found us. And his until was his life. Let's take the juice together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for a lot of us in this room, it's hard to believe that Jesus would sacrifice his life for me because of all the stuff that I've done, all the mistakes that I've made. We're thankful that he would search for us and find us and bring us home. Thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name, amen.